turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9, please. 2 Samuel chapter 9, and let's get our hearts ready for God's word. Oh God, please, I'm asking you to speak to us as a church. God, you know the burdens that we all face and that we all have. You know what our hearts are crying out for, maybe without even words to express. You somehow can interpret the groans of our hearts, the anguish, or maybe even the deep silence. Some of us, Lord, feel numb, lethargic. We're here in faith because we believe it's right, but Lord, it feels like duty at times. We want it to feel fresh and alive today. So I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and I pray that you'd start with me. Lord Jesus, would you please remind me again of of what you think about me, of your love for me. And I pray that for all of my friends here too, that we could be soaked and refreshed and brought alive again by the power of your love, your magnanimous love for us. Lord, I want to pray for our kiddos that are up in their Sunday school class right now. I pray that you would also, from a very young age, establish the love of God deep in the chromosomes of their being. That they would know deeply that they're loved. Because Lord, we know that is the great lie In so many different ways, the enemy whispers to us, you can't be loved. You're too bad. Something's wrong with you. Lord, I pray that you'd protect our children and that you'd help us and those that are pouring into our kids right now, that you'd give them discernment and wisdom and just overwhelming love for those kids. Lord, and I pray that somehow as they pour themselves out to them that they would be ministered to as well on this Sunday. Thank you for their sacrifice. Lord, we love you. And I ask God, please, that you'd speak to us. We're we're drawing near to you. And your word says when we draw near to you, you're sure to draw near to us. And we find out that you're the one that's been drawing us the whole time anyway. So Lord, we come now depending on you. In Jesus' name, amen. This is 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for, for, uh, on him for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, Well, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. And the king said, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the the house of Makur, the son of Emil at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought, from, brought him from the house of Makur 
the son of Emil at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Don't be afraid, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should, sh that you should show regard for a, a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belongs to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandsons may have, may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons. Prolific man. And 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servants do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's own sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table, and now he was lame in both of his feet. This is such a beautiful story. It starts out with this incredible phrase, straight out of David's abundant heart. Out of a blessed heart came a desire to bless somebody else. This is a clearly... <clears throat> Over and over again, a biblical pattern. I'm going to bless you so that you can bless others. That's kind of the way it goes, the way God hopes it goes, that he lavishes blessing and goodness on us so that our hearts will be so full that we want to just give it to others and we want to bless other people. <clears throat> David says, is there anyone who is left of the house of Saul? This is David's enemy that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Okay, David in this uh, part of his life is in the full flower of his greatness and success as king. This is the zenith of David's life, the pinnacle. He's defeated all of his enemies. All neighboring countries of Israel are either conquered or now bringing him tribute and submission, <clears throat> bringing him uh, money and Wealth and resources to keep going on what David is supposed to do. The Philistines, this arch nemesis of Israel, are now, they're completely taken care of. The Moabites are taken care of. The Edomites, the Syrians, every major threat is now completely under control. David has led Israel into a time, maybe for the first time since leaving Egypt, into a time of peace and rest. A time of prosperity. A time of great great blessings that's what's going on this is unprecedented triumph if you, and the reason i'm feeling this is because as a bible reader if you read the bible and the story of israel from the beginning let's just say from when they leave egypt and become a nation at the foot of mount sinai on you've been your heart's been waiting for this moment and been constantly dashed with disappointment 
In, in Exodus 19, God declares what he wants for the nation of Israel. You're going to be my special people, a treasure for me, and I'm going to give you this land, and you're going to be the, the light to, to the world. And so you get the, you, when you read that in Exodus 19, it's this beautiful language. God kind of puts his heart on his sleeve and what he hopes these people will be, <clears throat> and they continually and chronically fail and fail and fail over and over again. I know, that's how I feel. That's exactly how I feel. They get into the promised land and under Joshua, they gain some ground, but it's only partial. <clears throat> and when Joshua passes away and dies, before he does that, he says, obey the Lord, do what's right, follow him. And the people, just like under Moses, say, okay, we will. And of course, they don't. And they go through a series of judges that really goes from, from um, kind of okay judges to some of the worst leaders that Israel has seen. By the time you get to the end of Judges, Israel literally can't tell the difference between Yahweh and the Canaanite gods that are in the same land. They're getting very, very, very confused about his character, who he is, the difference between him and the, and the culture, uh, God and the culture around them. Maybe sounds a little familiar. We're, things aren't so crisp anymore. Things are blurry when it comes to their perception of God. And Samuel comes in and leads them and establishes them after uproot, God uprooting corrupt leadership. And then Saul happens. And it's kind of, you know, three steps forward, two steps back. Saul leads some victories. He rises them to prominence with Jonathan. But then Saul, you know, his, his, the corruption of his heart bubbles through. And finally, after all this trial, after all this rebellion, over this constant wavering, like a gravitational pull, you know, the song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I mean, you feel it in the nation of Israel as you're reading it. They're just prone to wander. Stephen in the New Testament said, you always go astray. You people of stiff necks and, and ironclad hearts, you're always falling away. Kind of like gravity, you're always falling or you're always going from hot to cold. Well, finally with David, here they are in this kind of a, 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 a dim realization of, of the grandeur of what they were meant to be. These Gentile nations are paying them tribute. They're coming to David. David's brought the ark, the presence of God, back into the heart of Israel's national life. They're worshiping him again. It's just this beautiful thing. And from this abundance, David says, who else can I bless? He's, he's made, in other words, he's made it his administration's number one policy at this point. Number one priority is to bless the house of the previous king. Now, here's what's interesting about that. It was customary in David's day that when a new dynasty replaced an old dynasty, that the new dynasty would find everyone even remotely connected to the old dynasty, and they would, they would kill everybody. There would be a wholesale massacre on anyone with even a hint of connection to the old dynasty and the reason for this was to eliminate any threat to secure and consolidate power so that you wouldn't have to be watching your back all the time from someone that thought that they had some right or some claim to the throne it was easier just to have a complete do-over wipe the slate clean so I mean it was brutal 
in the ancient world. Families, children, grandchildren. I mean, there was no mercy. They would hunt them down. The new regime would hunt down anyone from the old regime and wipe them out. It was very common to do this. But surprisingly, David has different motives. It was pretty common for a new king to ask the first part of this question. Is there anyone left from the house of whoever? So that I may kill them. <laughs> David says, so that I can show them, so that I can show them kindness. The word kindness here is a very, very famous word. I've alluded to it before, but it's repeated three times in this passage. The word kindness is the word chesed in Hebrew, and it refers to the, um, the covenant love between God and his people. It's a, it's a, it's a everlasting, never giving up, always and forever loyal love from God to his people. And we saw it show up originally Back in Exodus, when God cuts covenant with his people, they break it almost immediately. You remember when the Decalogue came from Moses, the Ten Commandments, they, the children of Israel had broken the Ten Commandments before they were even delivered. Moses throws them down. He's upset. God's really upset. God's saying, hey, let me um, destroy these fools and start a new nation through you. Who, that starts this chapters-long conversation between Moses and God, interceding between, so that God doesn't kill the people that he just rescued out of Egypt. And finally, in um, Exodus 33, God says, because I have favor on you, Moses, I'm gonna have favor on the people of Israel. And that's where you get this the most repeated verse in the Bible itself about God's character. It's in Exodus chapter 34, verses six through eight, where the Lord passes before Moses and says, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in love, rich in mercy, and stead, abounding in steadfast love. There's our word, chesed. Steadfast love. Again, the most repeated, if you want to know who God is in the Old Testament, if anyone comes to you and says, the God of the Old Testament's a jerk, you can tell them, actually, the number one repeated uh, verse about God's character in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that God wants you to know about him is that he is slow to anger, abounding in love, and kind, and yet just. He will punish sin, absolutely. He's a just God. But this steadfast love, and then God, it, um, it goes through, and God, but it really goes viral, so to speak, when God applies it to cuts covenant with David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, he makes this phrase, my chesed, my unfailing love, will, I will not remove it from you, even though you're going to sin, David, and you're going to sin like, like pro style. You're going to sin like really well and your children are going to sin and your children's children are going to sin your house your dynasty is going to be filled with evil and sin yet I will not remove my hesed my steadfast love for you we talked about this covenant a few weeks ago we talked about how it's it's steadfast it's stable it's unconditional and it's everlasting that's what makes a Davidic covenant, and it's powerful, super powerful. Well, now, it obviously stuck to David. That word, hesed, made an impression on David's mind because 
It's later in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when David, he goes in before God and, and um, responds to this lavishness. The one thing that David repeats is, who am I that you would pour out your chesed, your steadfast love upon your servant? That obviously stuck in his mind. And then the Psalms are just chock full of this word chesed. Um, I mean, let me just show you. Let me give you an example here. Um, this is going to be, this is, this is the famous one. Talk about going viral. Um, Psalm, I believe it's one, three, six. Come on, brain. You guys, I did it. Even a blind squirrel finds a nut sometimes. So, he says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his chesed endures forever. This is a call and response psalm. So someone would stand up and say, give thanks to the God of gods. And the congregation would say, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. And you would say, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who has done great wonders... I mean, let's just do this. To him who spreads out, the, spreads out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and the stars to rule over the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And brought down Israel out among them. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. And made Israel pass through in the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down kings. And killed mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as a heritage. A heritage to Israel, his servants. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. And rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. It's a, it's a word that means triumph. I mean, I, you know, what we need. It's like a picture, just a nation of people after this great, uh, it's like, at, you know, picture a parade after the Super Bowl, except even more. A nation of people that just had a victory, and, you know, we all need a glass of ale, and we're singing loudly and exuberantly, his steadfast love, some of us still with blood on our armor, endures forever. And the children and the women, it's this triumph. It's exuberant. 
Chesed. That's what it's about. This came from, really, this was made popular through David. It can, but it can also be used to describe love given between two humans, as in, as in our text here today. David wants to show, in verse 3 it says, the chesed of God. I want to show the kindness, the chesed of God to the house of Saul, to David's enemy. This is what's so remarkable about this. Jesus later came and said, it's really easy to show love to someone who's your friend. It's really easy to show love to someone who you know is going to love you back. It's really easy to share your life and be vulnerable and pour into someone that, that reciprocates. But God's love and our love is, a, is different, obviously. It is, the hesed love means I'm going to love even my enemies. But it, it's not a duty thing. So many times it's, it's expressed this way in the church. You know, you should love people. No, notice the context that this, is, this jewel of a story is set in. It comes from David's heart being, being it's, a, it's a, a reaction to God's love coming to him. I, I think of, a, of a, uh, a fountain that's being poured down, being, the first cup's being overflowed and it just flows out to others. It's, from, it's this inside out well of living water coming out from, the, from, the, from the, the most wounded place of your soul, being touched by the love of God that heals and bubbling out and overflowing to all around you. That's what David's doing here to where even his enemies, David really doesn't feel that much grudge against them. He's not threatened by them. He's not threatened by Mephibosheth. He's not threatened by the house of Saul. He doesn't feel scared. He's not looking over his shoulder. He's in a completely different headspace and emotional energy than other kings would be in his, in his situation. Most kings would nervously want to consolidate power. David is just like, I'm not worried about it. I just want to, I just want to cuddle. I just want to love my enemies. It's, it's this overflowing type of a thing. Oh... Now David said, is there, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I might show him kindness? And here's our key here for Jonathan's sake. This is the first thing that we learn about the love of God. Jonathan was the son. You, you, you know, you, we've been going through Samuel now for a while. I don't even know the math on that. But he has a, his son, um, Jonathan was the son to the prior king Saul and was the crown prince in line for the throne. Talk about someone who didn't feel threatened. In this one dramatic incident in 1 Samuel, Jonathan, somehow from this spiritual intuition or, or something going on there, some dynamic between him and David, Jonathan realizes that David is, is going to be king. He just gets it. He just sees the anointing on David's life, or there's just something that dawns on his soul that, David, or that Jonathan goes, you know what, you're the next guy. And in this dramatic scene, Jonathan takes off his robe, his royal robe, and he throws it around David. He takes out his sword and he hands it to David. And he says, you're going to be the next king. I'm going to get out of your way. I'm going to get out of your way because it, it really should be you. And during that incident, Jonathan made a covenant with David. David, when you do come to the throne, 
please don't, I'm asking you, please don't do the customs of our time. Don't slaughter my family. Instead, show kindness to my family the way I'm showing kindness to you. And Jonathan eventually supported David to the point where he sacrificed himself in death on Mount Gilboa on the field of battle, dying heroically so that David could be king. Here's the, the, the part of the story that we dare, if we forget this part of the story, our whole theology gets out of whack here when it comes to the life of David, when it comes to our own salvation and our own Christianity. If it was not for Jonathan's death, his sacrificial death, David calls it a sacrificial death in the first uh, chap chapter of, of 2 Samuel. David would not be king. If Jonathan did not sacrifice himself, he, David would not be king. He'd still be in Ziklag on the run. Now David is remembering that covenant and that promise that he made to Jonathan. He's probably, probably remembering what a good friend Jonathan was. And the kind words that they exchanged to one another, they were just the best of friends. So the first thing we learn here is that the chesed love of God in the Bible is always given for the sake of someone else. If you don't understand that, your theology will be, will be, will be off course. This is the difference between Christianity and a workspace type of a religion. This is very important when it comes to Christianity. As we already said with Moses, God showed his hesed to an evil calf-worshipping nation on behalf of the favor he had in Moses. Really important there. Really important there. On behalf of you, Moses, I'm going to show favor and grace and hesed to a calf-worshipping, idolatrous, chronically disobedient, evil people. Later, God showed chesed through, because of Samuel. We saw that in 1 Samuel chapter 8. That God was kind to, these, to sinful Israel again because Samuel had found favor in God's sight. Someone else has fulfilled the requirements. Someone else better than us has got God's eye. And because of that, God is showing favor on you and me. And in the New Testament, God pours out his love on us, his enemies, his enemies. Remember, we're the Saul's. Until we get to chapter 10 when we look at David, and unfortunately, you know, we all want to be David, and I want to say, unfortunately, that's all too true. <laughs> we are the evil part of David. That's, that's who we are. And in the New Testament, for the sake of his enemies, someone else would die like Jonathan. Jesus, the rightful heir to the cosmic throne, dies on a mountain, on a hill, much like Gilboa, so that someone on the run in the wilderness, you and me, someone, his enemies, someone with, with calf-worshipping tendencies, we are brought into the glory, the kingdom. We're princes and princesses. We're, we are royalty, Peter calls us. This is what, this is what um, the, the slant or the spin or the twist that St. Paul put on it is that we are in Christ. That's what he means. It, he, it's Paul's way of saying, 
God is loving you on behalf of Christ. Because Christ found favor, God is loving you and God is loving me in Christ. Um, I ate a gooey, sticky cinnamon roll with cream cheese frosting. Can I just get a, mm, right? It was really good. But you didn't know that, did you? Because it's in me. You don't see those sinful carbs. All you see is this perfected body. <laughs> yes. Because, it, I'm, because it's in me. That's the idea that when God looks at you and you're in Christ, you sinful, carb written, you know, person, God doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your failures. He doesn't see your falterings because he's found favor in someone who's perfect. You're in Christ. That's Paul's way of putting it. It's really important theologically. Really important. Because only with it can we both hold our identity of um, justified failures. That's what That's what Luther called Christians. Martin Luther said we are justified failures. It was his way of putting two of these ideas together. We have sin, we're broken, but we're justified in Christ. It's a legal change of perception. Some years ago I was reading an article in in the New York Times where um, in a local high school there in New York, all of a sudden, this young man, it was uh, the bell had rung and everybody had come out from their classes in the hallway and all of a sudden, this young man out of nowhere just hauled off and clocked another kid in his face so hard that he blacked out immediately and fell to the ground, hit his head on the ground, blood went everywhere and uh, you know, there's all this mayhem and the teachers came and a- apprehended this young man and they tried to tend to the, and they're like, what were you thinking? And as he was being apprehended, he, the young man just said, just look in his pocket just look in his pocket. And on the ground, the young man, they, they looked at his hand was in his pocket and it was holding a gun. It changed the perception of the situation, didn't it? It's still true. The guy punched him, but he was justified because it, you, you saw his reasoning behind it. That's the idea. God looks at you. He sees your sin, but he sees the motive, the love, the chesed of his son Jesus covering over you, we, you are loved on behalf of someone else. You are, lo- you are loved because someone else has found favor. You have not found favor in and of yourself. You are Israel, the chronic disobedient ones. Even, even the good things that we do, even when we follow the rules with our hearts, our motives, our, our sinful motives, even when we follow the rules, we do it for the wrong reasons. To build a city, to build a tower to the heaven without God. Look, I don't need you. I can follow your rules by myself. See, even that is tainted with sin. Only, only, I can't emphasize it enough, it's so important when it comes to your salvation, when it comes to how we view Christianity, only because God has found favor with Jesus can you and I be here, clean, forgiven, 
and be the recipients of this chesed. So David wants to find Saul, someone from Saul's family, to show him this. So how would David go about it? Well, he's, he's got to do a search. He's got to send people out. He's got to start asking questions. And the point is that if there was anyone left of the house of Saul, they would be doing what? They'd be hiding because they would know the customs of the day. I, as soon as they heard word that Saul and Jonathan died, they would, have gone, they would have gone off grid because people would have been coming for them. David's regime would be coming for them. So look at verse 2. And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So they're, hunt, they're, they're trying to find connections here. And so when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I'm at your service. Then the king said, Is there not someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Instead, he is in the house of Makur, the son of Emil in Lodabar. So we can learn a few things about this descendant of Saul here. First of all, Ziba is hesitant to name him. He says, well, there's still a son. He doesn't want to give a name, right? He probably thinks that David wants to find out who he is so he can kill him. That's probably, so he's, he's trying to be very careful here. And we learn that this descendant of Saul is lame in his feet, Ziba said this for two reasons. First of all, it was true. And secondly, probably perhaps he, he was trying to elicit some sympathy in David. Like, look, man, he can't even run from you. He's crippled. Like, he's no threat to you. Maybe just leave him alone. Don't go after him, right? David, just leave him alone. Second Samuel chapter 4 gives us the account of how Mephibosheth um, became crippled. And it's really tragic, actually. So when he was five years old, the news came to his household that his grandfather Saul and his father Jonathan had died on the field of battle, and panic ensued in Mephibosheth's house. And his nurse, in a panic to get out of the house as fast as, I mean, you know, they're opening suitcases and throwing what they've got in there, and they, his nurse grabs this five-year-old Mephibosheth and on the way out somehow drops him to the point where he breaks or severely, permanently injures both of his feet. He'll never, he'll never heal completely from this kind of fall. It has marred him permanently. So here is a crippled man hiding from King David, living in fear that David will discover him, and he's also very poor. That's what we know about Mephibosheth. He's crippled. He's living in fear, and he's, he's poor. How do I know he was poor? Well, at the end of verse 4, it says that he's living in the house of Makur. He's a grown man living on, in someone else's house, basically depending on someone else for, their, for his livelihood. He can't support himself. He needs charity from somebody else. Crippled, fearful, living in hiding, and poor. That's Mephibosheth. And that is exactly where we are before our king also. Mankind became the enemies of God and we ran from him in the garden. Do you remember the story? We were image bearers of God. We fell. We 
And what did we do? We hid from God. We started, immediately we started going on the run. And in the process, we fell and, we, and we're now crippled as a result. I mean, you can read the news and you can say, oh, there's Mephibosheth. Crippled, fearful, and on the run. If you can understand this metaphor in the Bible, you can understand the world in which we live. You can understand the hearts and minds of your neighbors and your coworkers and the people here in Seattle. And you can understand it from a, not just a theological place, but you can understand it from a personal place. You should be able to identify very personally in some way with Mephibosheth. Crippled, something's broken in you. Something's not working the way God intended it to work. And there's a dissonance between what you know you ought to be and what you actually are. There's an incongruence there. And we're on the run. Because of this, we like Mephibosheth are hiding. We're running. The first man, Adam, hid too. And so, and so, so are we. Why do we do this? Why do we have this tendency to avoid and run from God, the very one that we need? And we do that. We fill up our schedules. We become busy, busy, busy. We fill our lives with distractions. There's three, you know, there's three documented um, revolutions that made us further, run further and further from God. One was the light bulb. You know, before the light bulb, you know what we were doing. We would go to sleep when the sun went down and we would wake up when the sun came up. Then the clock was introduced in Germany, I think. The first clock was erected in Germany, so we started keeping time artificially rather than naturally. I think the clock came first, then it was the light bulb. That's what it is. The clock came first, then it was the light bulb. Um, before the light bulb, the average person was sleeping 12 hours a day, a night. Now, the average person is down to, I think it's like, I think it's like six. And that's average. And the third thing is the iPhone. <laughs> Social media. Constantly on our phones. Constantly being distracted. When one, I don't remember, remember his name, but when one Christian philosopher was asked, asked what is the greatest spiritual what is the greatest hindrance in our modern times to, spirit, to our spiritual lives? You know, what, I mean, what would you say? We'd say secularism. Would we say, uh, with phone? yeah, he said hurry. Or you know, actually what he said, direct quote, efficiency. Efficiency has become the greatest hurdle. He said you need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry out of your life if you want to. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry out of your life if you want greater connection with God. The ancients knew this. It was about, like we said in, during our worship time, being still and knowing that he's God. The only way to do that at times is to put this sucker on silent or throw it in the nearest pond of water. You know, you know we do, I mean, you, you know, what do we do when we're in uncomfortable conversations within groups, at least some of us? We let other people talk and we, hmm, I wonder what's going on on Instagram. We can't handle it. 
I can't handle the deal with, with some of these things. Why? Biblically, it would, it, the Bible would say, we're running. We're running. We're avoiding. Why? Have you ever wondered why we have a natural tendency to avoid God? If you're a Christian, it's even worse. Because your mind tells you, your heart simultaneously tells you to draw near and yet hide at the same time. Have you ever, as a Christian, have you felt that, di- especially when you've sinned? You know, it, it's this, if you've done something wrong, you've got too much of sin in you to enjoy the Lord, but you've got too much of the Lord in you to enjoy the sin, and it's just miserable. It's just miserable. And we avoid and we, we go away. We do this because of a false perception of God that says what? What is, what is Mephibosheth's false perception of David? He's going to kill me. He's coming to say, I'm taking my chesed back from you. This was my prayer for our, our little kids at the beginning of our children at the beginning. I think this is the most prevalent lie in the hearts of every human, but just, in, just packaged in different forms. You're not lovable. You're not lovable. You can't be loved. Something's too wrong with you. You've done this one too many times. Boy, you've made a mess of things. You can't... On and on and on it goes. So we run, we hide, we avoid because we think God, like Mephibosheth thought of David, he's out to get me. He's coming to judge. We do this because of a false perception of who God is. We think that God is going to say like we think like any ancient would think David would say is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I might kill him we think that God's up there going is there anyone out there that I can squish today that I can that I can shame at best maybe you think God's just ignoring you for a bit I just can't stand you for a little bit instead the heart of God is Just like it was back in the beginning in Genesis, God came into the garden looking. And that's the heart of David. And we, like Mephibosheth, are poor. Your bank account might not tell you this, or maybe it it does, but we're poor in soul because we come to Jesus. We... uh, or excuse me, before we come to Jesus. We're poor in soul before we come to Jesus. Look at, look at um, David's response. Look at verse five. It says, Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Makur, the son of Emil, from Lodabar. Can you, by the way, can you imagine how this, would have, how, how this would have gone down? This would have been like trauma coming all the way back to Mephibosheth. I mean, another knock on the door, and there's the king's men. Uh, yeah, we're sent from King David. We're here to bring a Mephibosheth. You know, he would immediately would have been, he immediately would have been, oh, he found me. Busted. I'm sure his heart would have stopped. The day, this day that he'd been dreading had finally come. But look at verse six. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell down on his face prostrated himself and then David said Mephibosheth and he answered here's I'm here's your servant I pose no threat nothing to see here David he knows the customs and how things are done and he's saying maybe you could let me live but the truth is here 
that David loved Mephibosheth before Mephibosheth ever loved David. David cared about Mephibosheth and was thinking about Mephibosheth and was searching for Mephibosheth before Mephibosheth thought about going to David and asking for help. All the hiding, all the fear from this King David, it was all a figment of Mephibosheth's imagination. It was all from a false premise of who David was. It was a big, horrible misunderstanding. It was an illusion made from a false belief system of David. How much, how many, how much of the times are we running because of a false belief system of the heart and character of God? I'm not good enough. I've blown it. It's, it's the enemy putting that lie in our brains. You can't, you're not, you can't be loved. And so David said to him in verse seven, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, for I will surely show you chesed for Jonathan, your father's sake. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to restore to you all the land of Saul. So chesed, number one, is given for the sake of others. And what is the nature of chesed? It restores. Love, the love of God, restores. I'm going to restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. So not only does it restore land, it restores relationship. It doesn't just restore lost property, it restores a lost communion between the house of David and the house of Saul. How shocked do you think that Mephibosheth was when those words came out of David's mouth? Was he like waiting for judgment? Maybe he was waiting for Dave to, David to say, Mephibosheth, your servant, where's my spear? My, my favorite one. I want to kill Mephibosheth. No. Instead, he says, Mephibosheth, don't be afraid, man. I'm here to be kind to you and I'm going to restore everything you lost. I'm going to give it all back. David didn't just restore him. He did more than that. Look at verse 7 again. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my house continually. David is blessing Mephibosheth for the sake of another. Not because of how great you are, Mephibosheth. I don't even, you know, David could say, I don't even know you. It's not because of how great you are. I knew your father, and your father died for me. Your dad believed in me. He loved me, and he died for me. And I'm honoring you because I want to honor him. Now this land, it rightfully belonged to Mephibosheth, but they couldn't find any of the descendants of Saul, so therefore back then it, it immediately was brought into the property of the king. He would hold it. It was the king's property. And these people never came forward to claim the land, so it reverted to the, to the crown. But it's David's to give to whoever he wants. He has that authority. Not only that, but at the end of verse 7, David says, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Now this would have blown him away. Um, you guys, really important to write this down or think about this. The king's table was reserved for the king's family. 
This is another very, very important hint of a very uh, strong theological, theological idea of Christianity. Without understanding it, you will be off in your theology. Only those closest to the king ate with him. This was an incredible privilege. And notice, David invites him not just to eat once or twice, but he says continually. You have, you have unhindered access to me and my table and to my family, Mephibosheth. There is no more barrier between us. In fact, not only are we just, I'm not just going to give you, a, you know, like a two-day coupon to the king's buffet. No, you can come whenever you want. He was invited to have an intimate relationship with the king and with his family. He has access to the king. And look at Mephibosheth's response. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon me as such a dead dog as I? Now, we could say this was exaggeration if we just didn't look at where Mephibosheth had been. You can't live for years and years in hiding. Think of some of you all. Maybe in your own life you've been hiding or you're thinking of the shame or you're thinking of your, your past. Think of the weight that your past bears on you, the broken relationships, the hurt families, all of maybe that you had a part in. Think of the burden, the psychological burden there. You can't live for years and years in hiding and fear and poor and crippled before you become to be convinced that you're worthless. At some point, it becomes a belief system about your character. That's how Mephibosheth thought of himself. He says, I'm just a dead dog. I'm nothing. I'm worse than nothing. That's how many people, that's how many people think of themselves today. When you live in poverty and in hiding and fear, and you're broken in some way, either physically, emotionally, or mentally, you start to believe that you're less than. You start to believe that something's wrong with you. And you don't want to bring that out, so you start to hide. It's affected. It's, some, it's like a disease that at some point affects the core of your being. It gets in there. It becomes a part of you. And he feels that he's completely alone in life. He's lost, Mephibosheth has lost a sense that he's special, that he's image of God. And that's what isolation will do to you. And David doesn't want to fix this by dumping a bunch of stuff on him. There needs to be relationship. That's what I love about uh, UGM. They're totally onto this. When it comes to the homeless in our city, they want to love them. They want relationship with them. They want to give that more than anything else because they know relationship is, is the crux of the Bible's narrative. We've lost a key relationship. Therefore, only relationship can fix it. When we get to verse 9, it's almost as if we see David trying to prove that he means it to Mephibosheth. Look at He says, And the king called Aziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I've given to your master's sons... Son, all that belonged to Saul and to his, all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land. Oops. Uh, shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. 
Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servants, so will I do for you. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he will eat at my table like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. In other words, it was as if David said to Mephibosheth, see that man Ziba right there, Mephibosheth? All his sons now belong to you. You have servants. I'm mean, talking about a rags to riches story. An absolute change of life. And then, in one day, he's not poor anymore. The biggest thing here to cue into um, theologically is the idea of adoption. Um, here's the verse I'm thinking of. This is 1 John chapter 4. It says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be forgiven of all of our sins. No. Nope, doesn't say that. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be restored all the stuff that we lost. No, no. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the sons and daughters of the living God. That's what I want you to understand here. What is the end goal of the gospel? What is the end goal of the Bible? Adoption. Adoption. That's how lavish the love of God is. It would have been enough to forgive us of our sins. It would have been enough to restore some things that we have lost and brought us into a healthier place. But, and, and so much of the time, unfortunately, this is where we camp as a church in the West and we go no further. And do you see how uh, uh, disconnected that is from our identity? If it's just about the forgiveness of sins, what do we tend to do? Oh, sweet, thanks. And then we live our lives without any relationship with God. We don't talk to him. We don't pray much unless we're in trouble or unless we need more forgiveness. Because it's just like a legal thing. Justification, as good as it is, is a means to the end of adoption. We are to enjoy a restored relationship with God the Father you and I have access, unrestricted access into the throne of the king of kings where he says, please, don't call me king. Call me dad. Jesus said that. Jesus got that. The son of David understood it. When his disciples came to him and they said, Lord, teach us how to pray like you. These are good Jewish boys. They've been praying since they were old enough to think. But something about Jesus' prayer was much different. It wasn't so rote. It wasn't so uh, traditionalized that there was no heart in it. He was enjoying a relationship. And the first thing he said, he said, when you pray, pray this, Abba, Daddy. J.I. Packer tells us that the New Testament name for God is Daddy. In the New Testament, God says, I'm not only 
the great shepherd and you're my sheep. I'm not only the king and you're my subjects, I am your father and you are my beloved children. People have asked me, um, in fact, because of this, I'm gonna, we're gonna devote an entire sermon next week to the idea of adoption. We're gonna revel in it next Sunday. We're gonna enjoy it. We're gonna pull ourselves up to this table and we're gonna drink deep next Sunday. It's gonna be wonderful. Someone had asked me, who mentored you the most in your life, Mike, about the love of God? And it was, my answer even surprised me. I said, my son, Noble. Because man, I'll tell you what, I never understood God's love for me until I understood a little bit of my love for my, for my boy. There's nothing that I wouldn't do to love that kid. No matter what, it's unconditional, no matter what. I can never, even if he doesn't turn out the way I hope, oh, I will love him. I'll endure any kind of pain or suffering. I'll stick in there as long as I need to do. I'll keep grinding day after day after day because I love that kid. And I get, I hear the father whisper to me, you have a little dim hint, Mike. You have a little dim hint, Mike. You got to turn up, you got to turn it up. I'm just kidding. It's a little dim hint of how I feel about you. A little dim hint of how I feel about you. Mike, I love you with an everlasting, never giving up, always and forever love. You are my son. You come to me whenever you want, Mike. And yeah, and did you notice the last verse here? Mephibosheth is crippled still. God says to Mike and to you, I know you're still tripping. I know you're still crippled. I know you're still broken. I know you're still limping. I know you're still hurting. I know you've got pain. But you come to my table as my son. You have unrestricted access. You come as my son. This is my story. So let's quickly recap. David gives the grandson of his enemy his life. He gave him back what he lost. He gave him the privilege of eating at his table. He gave him a family, and he gave him his servants. That's a, that's a pretty good deal. This probably persuaded Mephibosheth that this was for real. Let me draw some conclusions here. You are Mephibosheth, if you haven't figured it out already. It's you and me. You were hiding, you were poor, you were weak, afraid and broken. You were separated from your king because of your own wicked ancestors. Why was Mephibosheth separated from King David? Was it because of something that Mephibosheth did? Not really, not, he, you know. Did you know that your sin, even though you're culpable of it and you've made your own decisions, did you know that there's a reason you make those decisions? It's because you were broken in a fall that you did not ask for. So instead of asking the question, if you're dealing with yourself, what's wrong with me? I think the better theological question is, what happened to me? What happened to me? 
Adam rebelled and it had ramifications. You are like Mephibosheth because you separated yourself from your king. You're like Mephibosheth because your king sought you before you ever sought him. Right? You didn't go looking for him. He came looking for you. You're like Mephibosheth because the kindness of your king is extended to you for the sake of another person. You're adopted because of the sake of David, because of the sake of the son of David, Jesus Christ. It's not because you're so wonderful, sorry to burst your bubble, but remember, you're lame, you're crippled. You are Mephibosheth that you're, uh, in that your king's kindness towards you is based on covenant. It's rock solid. It is like the Davidic covenant. It's stable. It's unconditional. It's everlasting. You are like Mephibosheth in that you've received the king's kindness in humility. Mephibosheth didn't say, well, it's about time you found me. He says, oh, who am I? You are like Mephibosheth in that the king restores to you what was lost. But you are like Mephibosheth as well in that the king returns more to you than you ever lost. He gives you his family. You have access to him as his adopted son and daughter. And finally, uh, you're still broken this side of heaven. If you are Mephibosheth after coming to, to the palace, the idea is why are we not pulling up to the table more often? If we have access to the king's table, are you going there? If you have access to this table here, come, boldly come and receive. And don't just leave it here, come often and receive of his goodness and his grace. You're his kids, you could stay there a while. Don't be in a hurry to go. Stick around, enjoy it. Amen.